2: which makes flavor-forward broths, super-premium soups, and gourmet broth concentrates, all in glass jars. For more information, visit www.zoopbroth.com.
1: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about Native American cuisine. My guest today is Lois Ellen Frank. Lois is a Santa Fe, New Mexico-based, James Beard Award-winning author, chef, native foods historian, educator, photographer, and gardener. She's the chef-owner of Red Mesa Cuisine, a catering company in Santa Fe, and cooks with Chef Walter Whitewater. Chef Walter Whitewater is also the culinary advisor on the James Beard award-winning cookbook and on the brand new book that just came out called Seed to Plate, Soil to Sky, Modern Plant-Based Recipes Using Native American Ingredients. And I would like to welcome Lois to the show. Uh, There's so much that there is to talk about this topic. Welcome, Lois.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to be here.
1: It is a beautiful book, delicious looking recipes and the gorgeous photography, which I gather you did the photography of the food in the book, correct?
3: Yes, uh, I did all the food photographs. I had an amazing crew and then uh, a good friend and colleague that I did my undergraduate uh, degree with at Brooks Institute, Daphne Hogart, did a lot of the farm shots.
1: Well, it's, I mean, the, it is good enough to eat off the page. I mean, that's, they're just delicious looking recipes. Uh, you did so much work in, in um, spending time in the communities, the uh, Native American communities studying their, their cuisine, their foods, their food ways. What, what led you to this work?
3: That's a really good question. Uh, I think early on in my career in Los Angeles, when I was a food photographer, I really plugged in to the uh, Native American community in the Los Angeles area. And I started to realize that um, nobody had documented the foods. And I started working with uh, a wonderful, wonderful cook. Uh, um, she was actually a home economic teacher, uh, Juanita Tiger Cavina out in Palacca, Arizona, and she had been documenting Hopi recipes. And I decided I wanted to do a book on Native American cuisine and went to New York to pitch the idea. And that sort of triggered many different things. I'd been going, driving back and forth while I was working. Uh, It helped me to relocate to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and start working in many areas with the Pueblos and different tribes uh, documenting uh, native food ways. And that was uh, the first book, which, uh, which came and went very quickly. Hmm. And then I decided to reenter academia uh, in 1997. I got my master's and then went on to do PhD work. And that research has led to the James Beard award-winning award winning book that, uh, won the James Beard award in 2003 and this new book, which carries on all of the information and research that we've been doing and, uh, documenting in native communities here in the Southwest.
1: Well, it's, I mean, it just is a delight to, uh, to learn things that I never even considered or thought about. Uh, and in doing some of the research for this interview, I learned that New Mexico is actually, New Mexico, I, which I'm familiar with um, several parts, Santa Fe in particular, and in that area, it, it's home to 23 distinct tribes and nations and indigenous peoples. And even though the foods that you represent, as in your previous book, are mostly, it's all that of the Southwest Native Americans, but many of those ingredients are connected to other, if not all, native americans in some way can you tell us about tell us about the important ingredients that or the the magic eight as you call them
3: yes so i love this term the magic eight uh we originally i wanted to name the cookbook the magic eight and the publishers thought that nobody would know what i was talking about so we incorporated that into the introduction but the magic eight are eight ingredients corn beans Squash, chili, tomato, potato, vanilla, and cacao. And these ingredients are eight ingredients that Native people shared with the world and that didn't exist anywhere outside the Americas prior to 1492. So when we deconstruct that, that means that the Italians didn't have the tomato. (laughs) The Irish didn't have the potato. Britain had fish, but no chips. No chilies in any Asian cuisine, African cuisine, East Indian cuisine, Greek cuisine. A lot of the cuisines that we see chilies in didn't exist. And then areas that are just known for their delicious and delectable desserts and vanilla and chocolate didn't have vanilla and chocolate like France or Belgium or Switzerland. And so we just didn't see these ingredients uh, appearing in europe and other parts of the world until after 1492
1: yeah that's i mean that just you know the the three sisters which okay talk about the three sisters those are the ones that, that i think a lot of people are familiar with because they hear about that in conjunction with different recipes and gardening all the time and the three sisters are what
3: Corn, beans, and squash. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are many different stories about how they came to be as sisters. But what's interesting is not only together do they provide almost every nutrient known to sustain human life, it's also the way they grow, the permaculture and the sustainability of how they interact. So corn needs nitrogen from the soil. Beans are nitrogen-giving And so beans give nitrogen and in exchange, corn is this beautiful pole for beans to climb up. Mm -hmm. And then squash has big leaves, which shades the ground, keeping moisture in and preventing weed growth. So they have this harmonious, interconnected relationship uh, and thus are referred to in many tribal nations as the three sisters.
1: Yeah. Interesting. It's just, it's, it's so amazing when to think about it. I mean, yes, we know foods of the new world, but yeah, but who brought them to the new world? Who introduced them? Who was using them already? It's, you know, it, it really is something that it deserves to be spoken about in its own way. Yeah,
3: I'm, I'm, I'm just going to interject because it's so interesting that you said new world. Um, we have to remember that history is always subjective, And that the Americas are called the new world because history has always been talked about from a Eurocentric perspective. If Native Americans were telling history, Europe would be the new world.
1: Right.
3: So we have to remember that history, uh, for me, it's like a bicycle wheel. And depending on where you are in the world and where you come from, where your culture evolved from, your perspective on the same historic event is different than someone else in the world that experienced that same historic event. So it allows for diversity and diversifying perspectives on the same historical event. And I think that's really important to contextualize and allow for. That there are many stories and many different ways of telling what happened at a specific time in history.
1: That's right. I think you're absolutely right. Um, that and in fact, in, in tying into the the fact that this was not they wrote and resent the the Native American culture does not represent new they new world or new world new foods we call the new world new foods from the old world um, there. There is actually a timeline of Native American cuisine, and you lay this out very beautifully in the book. And you refer to this timeline of an American, Native American cuisine, as having four distinct food periods that make up the cuisine. Can you take us through those different periods and, and elaborate on, on what these, what this means, in, in the time of the food?
3: absolutely and we can you know safely say that all cultures and all cuisines have had different encounters throughout history which have affected their foods the introduction of new uh, ingredients, um, the fusing together. I always love to say, you know, Grandma A and Grandma B get together and Grandma A watches Grandma B make a tamale and she makes it differently than she does. And so Grandma A takes a little of Grandma B's technique and Grandma B takes a little of Grandma A's technique, even though they're from different cultural groups. And that is really fusion. That is fusion cuisine, right? Because they're each adopting a little bit from each other and then going off in their own direction and continuing on those traditions. So uh, during my research, getting my PhD at the University of New Mexico, uh, I broke down Native American cuisine into four distinct cultural groups. And one I called pre-contact. And when I say pre-contact, I mean pre-contact with a culture group outside of indigenous or native, because we know that Native Americans had extensive trade routes and that scientists at the University of New Mexico in 2009 found vessels in Chaco Canyon. And in those vessels was theobromine and theobromine is chocolate. So we know that chocolate from a different part of the Americas was here about 1500 years ago. Mm So Native people had extensive trade routes. So this pre-contact or pre-colonial, as some other Native American chefs refer to it as, uh, had these ingredients, wild game, lots of wild fruits and nuts and lettuces and onions and carrots and all different types of ingredients which made up the cuisine. And then we delineate that period And actually, in my research, I only went back 10,000 years, but in the last several years here in New Mexico, scientists found footprints in white sands, New Mexico, which had moss in them, and then they radiocarbon dated the moss and found it was 22,000 years old. So I didn't even go back far enough. So let's say (laughs) from 22,000 years ago up until 1492, and we'll delineate by saying that once uh, Columbus encountered the Americas, uh, things changed. Ingredients were exchanged. We call this the Columbian Exchange. Right. And, you know, I, I also want to contextualize that Columbus didn't discover America. He accidentally stumbled upon America using faulty maps, thinking the earth was flat, looking for India and black pepper. So that's another side story. So we have the pre-contact, and then we have the first contact. And that's when these magicate ingredients make their way to Europe and other parts of the world. But ingredients from Europe and other parts of the world come here, changing native cuisine forever. And probably the biggest and most profound are the domesticated animals. So pork, beef, sheep, goats, and chickens, but also their byproducts. Because native people only hunted wild game. How do you milk a wild bison that's lactating? You don't. So So no dairy, right? No dairy, no dairy. Uh, And then we do see wheat and wine uh, introduced. And specifically here in New Mexico, we see traces of that in the very early 1500s. So early on this timeline. But they weren't brought here originally for food. They were brought for the forced conversion of the indigenous people of this area to Catholicism. So they weren't used for food until after that forced conversion. So we have the pre-contact and then we have the first contact. So for instance, Navajo sheep, which are very important in the Diné tribe uh, and the Navajo nation, were introduced just the same way that the Italian tomato was introduced. So on both sides of the world, we see these first contact ingredients being woven into the identity of the culture groups that they're introduced to and now inseparable. We can't take away the tomato from the Italians and we can't take away sheep from the Navajo Nation. So Mm -hmm. uh, intricate. I like the word woven because then you can see, you know, uh, think of something weaving together where you don't undo it unless you know, so we just want to delineate and accurately define in the case of native people, we have one more period, uh, which we call the government issue. Uh, I think that this is the most painful in U S history and the most problematic in terms of cuisine, what was introduced and how it affected the diet. And, uh, what happened was as, uh, the U.S. begins to expand and more and more immigrants come to the United States and the U.S. government encourages people head west for free land. It might be free to one culture group, but it's not to the other culture group. It probably felt like an invasion to Native people. Native people lose their hunting grounds. They're forced onto reservations. We see the Trail of Tears. We see the Long Walk. We see... Uh, Um, A lot of pain and suffering. And when you lose your hunting base or your agricultural base, how do you survive? What foods do you eat? How Mm. is that indigenous knowledge surrounding where you've lived for millennia um, disrupted? And so the U.S. government issued rations, uh, beginning with lard, flour, sugar, coffee, and uh, canned meat products like spam or Corned beef or sometimes pork. And those were the rations that Native people were expected to survive on uh, during this period. And, you know, some Native tribes or pueblos were able to hold on to their land, but albeit that land shrunk as other culture groups began to claim land and settle on lands that they had always used surrounding these reservation boundaries. And so we call this the government issue period. This period was when fry bread was born, the Indian taco was born, and uh, we start to see uh, some of the health disparities from this introduced food that really is a a high fat, heavy, cheesy diet, you know, as we look forward, seeing some of these commodity foods being introduced. So we have pre-contact, first contact, government issue, and where we are now, which I think, I think Chef Walter agrees, is the most exciting, is what we call the new native. And the new native is really each community, each native community, getting to decide what's on their plate, what foods are relevant to their community for health and wellness, what foods do they want to eat for health and wellness, and what's on their own plates. And uh, Chef Walter and I love to present these new foods based on old foods uh in a very contemporary uh beautifully plated way. I think we both think that uh food is art and we love to bring that art form forward uh regardless of who we're cooking for.
1: Yeah, I think that that whole art aesthetic um that I, we can attribute to the native americans in that part of the country is is beautifully represented in the food, the, not only the food, but the, you know, the, how it, the plating the and the plates themselves, it's just, just all over, you know, the area, you see just the attention to detail. And I, I think that's wonderful. As I say, we eat with our eyes first, right? <laughs> I know
3: it. I do. Yes. Yeah. I think people do
1: too. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's why I thought they said the photographs were so great. I could eat the food right off the photograph. It's just, it's, is so appealing to the eye. Uh, We worked really hard on the photographs. And I will say that every
3: dish that is in the book we ate. So there was nothing done to it, making it inedible in terms of a food photograph. We tried to plan, you know, shooting the, uh, you know, meals. Like we planned our food photography around what we were going to eat for lunch. And we would make those photograph them, and then eat and then photograph more and then eat dinner. And, uh, it, it was really a, a fun process. We did wow. about yeah. uh, five photo shoots to get all these photos, uh, in the
1: book. Wow. That, they're terrific. They are, they are terrific. Uh, you know, I, I, something that I was thinking that I was waiting to hear, um, in the four periods, um, is the tech or the traditional ecological knowledge. Uh, this is a very important part of the Native Food Waste program. Can you can you tell me what that is and talk about that a little bit?
3: So TEK is and every culture in the world has its own TEK, okay? Every culture in the world has it. So what happens is uh, over time, the ancestors figure out when to plant, how to plant, where to harvest, what to harvest, what's safe to eat, what's not safe to eat, how the animals migrate, all of this valuable information. And then it gets passed down. And as it's passed down, uh, it's perpetuated. And so T-E-K stands for traditional ecological knowledge, the knowledge of the ancestors that is passed down from generation to generation. So I'm going to give a couple of examples just to contextualize it for your listeners. Uh, Here in New Mexico, we have a specialized corn that is grown called chico's. And that corn is then dried either on racks and just dried or dried in our outdoor earthen ovens. Once that corn is dried or roasted, uh, it's then picked off the cobs. And then when you cook it, it reconstitutes. So all the knowledge surrounding around which corn, how to grow it, when to plant it, how to harvest it, how to make the Chicos is TEK. And if that, if people don't buy that corn, and that information doesn't get passed on, and people don't continue to make it; it ceases to exist.
0: Mm-hmm. You
3: know, another really good example would be the nixtamalization process, mm-hmm. or what we would call ash corn. So, corn soaked in ash and then boiled, uh, the skins come off, and that inside part of the corn becomes hominy. Here in New Mexico, we call it pozole. And then that corn can be dried and reconstituted as hominy or pozole, or that corn can be dried, uh, ground into a masa used fresh or dried, powdered, and then used. And that treated corn is used in tortillas and tamales. It's treated or nixtamalized corn. And again, that process goes back thousands of years. That's, traditional knowledge that's passed down, and if nobody continues to do it, that knowledge becomes endangered of not being passed on. So there's a movement to re-indigenize and revitalize and reinvigorate some of these ancestral processes and knowledge surrounding food and food waste.
1: Yeah. Well, and uh, something that I, I liked reading and hearing about throughout the book is, hand in hand with that, it starts to Decolonize or re indigenize their diets as well when they learn about these processes. Yeah, what? a lot of people
3: use the term decolonize, and I don't because, you know, uh, English is the national language, and I think it, it, it's impossible at this point in history to completely decolonize what has happened over time and True. millennia. True. But I do think that there is the potential to re-indigenize and revitalize and reinvigorate and reclaim health and wellness uh, using traditional food and food ways. And so I prefer um, sort of uh, rather than undoing uh, this idea of re-indigenizing. And that's just me personally. Um, uh, Other people use the term decolonize all the time.
1: Right. Well, and this, whole explanation you give that it, <clears> that has to be recognized, has to be learned. And, and that in itself is part of the, uh, food sovereignty. I mean, they will know what to do. And you talk a lot about, about food sovereignty and the right to, to that. And I know that Walter has, <laughs> he has his terms that he prefers to, uh, to discuss it. Um, but that these peoples need no longer to be eating the government-issued foods, obviously. Um, But for a healthier diet, they need to learn some of the old ways, correct?
3: Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, well, why did you go plant-based?
1: Right. That's what I was going to ask too.
3: (laughs) Yeah. But but I'll just, um, you know, and Walter, he doesn't like the term food sovereignty because uh, it's a very European term based on Eurocentric perspectives. But if I were to say, what is Native American food sovereignty? It really is about food justice. It's about food security, right? So what right. is food security? Right. Not worrying, where's my next meal gonna come from? That That's not a great feeling, right? Um, environmental justice, in order to grow food or harvest food or hunt for food, you have to have clean land. Right, in the environment. And then uh, it's dependent on this TEK, right, that what we just talked about traditional knowledge. And then the idea that Native American communities can grow and produce and harvest their own food, but also buy these foods from other Native vendors or barter with them. And then what happens is this reconnects people to the land, to the community. And to their own culture. So uh, I think that's a really good way to sort of contextualize it. And then let's talk about why would we do plant based? Um, We work a lot with uh, the New Mexico Department of Health. And we work in Native communities. And we work with the Navajo Nation. We work with a lot of tribal communities individually. Uh, We work with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine in uh, Washington, D.C. And the initiative was really about um, this idea of reintroducing these indigenous foods for health and wellness in areas where maybe it didn't get passed down. You know, we had the boarding school era where people were ripped from their homes and fed, you know, a high fat Uh, foreign diet and so when you go back home how do you uh, learn these traditional foods so what we found was that many Native American community members want to eat more plants but like me if you had a mom that only cooked green beans till they weren't green anymore (laughs) how do you know how to cook plants well we spent you know time after time working with these plants and making them taste good without meat in them. And we decided that we were going to go plant-based because a lot of people want to do a plant forward diet. They want to incorporate more plants for health and wellness. And more and more doctors are saying plant forward, uh, uh, plant-based Mediterranean, you know, lots of plants. right? Right. And so if you don't know how to cook them, How do you incorporate them into your diet? So we decided meat's easy. It's easy to add it, 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 but it's really hard sometimes to make the plants um, come to life and fulfill you and sustain you on their own. So we consciously made a decision to do uh, plants. And I think both Walter and I are very, very, very plant forward uh, in our diets and, uh, we had a lot of fun taking these recipes and bringing them to the modern table or the modern palette with modern techniques. Uh, some are very ancestral and traditional in their essence and making them accessible to everyone. And I think the more that, uh, you know, type two diabetes doesn't see age or ethnicity or or color or any right. of those things. Right. And that in order for us as a nation to be healthy, all of us, every color, every person needs to incorporate uh, a, a great deal more plants into their diets for health and wellness.
1: That's absolutely right. And in fact, we're going to talk about some of the recipes that are in this book. You'd never know that they were missing what some people who, who can't have a meal without meat, you would never know the meat was missing. And we're going to talk about those as soon as we come back from a short break. So stay with us.
2: Serving soup face-to-face to customers across the country at Zoop eatery locations for over two decades, the Zoop Good Really Good team learned people's preferences. And they used this as a secret sauce to create a collection of super premium soups, flavor forward broths, and gourmet broth concentrates. Available in nine varieties, ranging from chicken pot pie and spicy chicken enchilada to portobello mushroom bisque and butternut squash, the clean ingredient soups are perfect for enjoying a comfort meal in minutes. The broth lineup, which includes chicken, beef, veggie, and seafood broths, plus bone broths, features rich, simmered all-day flavor. For even more versatility, Zoop offers culinary concentrates, which easily boosts the taste of casseroles, pastas, and rice dishes. All products are packaged in recyclable and reusable glass jars free of artificial ingredients, preservatives, and GMOs. They're available at your favorite retailers across the country and through Instacart, plus online at zoopbroth.com, walmart.com, and Amazon. Browse recipes and learn more at zoopbroth.com or by following at Zoop Good Really Good on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest.
1: Hi, I'm talking with Lois Ellen Frank, who has just published a new book called Seed to Plate, Soil to Sky, Modern Plant-Based Recipes Using Native American Ingredients. Um, and Lois, the, we were talking about these recipes and how you have to know how to cook the plants and, and make them palatable. And not only that, but you have done it in such a way that, as you say, in your catering company, Red Mesa Cuisine. Um, you do it with a modern twist. I mean, people have to be, you know, they they have to be kind of drawn in and 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 eat this food that hmm, this is fun, not just a, you know, the same old tamale. Well, same old tamale is a pretty good thing, you know. <laughs> Don't discount that. But in looking through the recipes, um, I, well, I in and the and the processing part of, the, of making the recipes, cooking. I love the, the whole no waste sustainable practice that goes on. It's just, it's, you know, right up the, the common alley, but it's certainly something that has been a practice with the Native American uh, peoples for a long time, I would imagine. And I'm speaking about you know, cooking in the corn husks and then taking the husks of the corn. This one wonderful picture that's in there. Um, And then showing that they're buried and put back into the earth again. And much as we keep our our compost, you know, for our future gardens. Um, But the recipes that in particular that caught my eye that I'd like you to talk a little bit about. First one is the no fry fry bread. Can you talk about that one? We
3: use that a lot. So, you know, as we learned a little bit earlier in uh this show, fry bread, which is perfectly fine to eat a couple of times a year because but it's you delicious. Can't eat it every day. I think every culture has something that's fried, you know, but right. it'd be like eating donuts every day. You know, we don't want to do that because we know that they're uh, not that good for you. Right. So we took, uh, both the fry bread dough. We did a blue corn version and a regular version and instead same, same recipe. So most, uh, um, families that grew up eating fry bread every day know the dough. And so you can take this dough and, make it grilled instead of frying it. And uh, think pita bread, right? Yes. Or think uh, a non bread, although the non bread tends to have a little bit more uh, oil to it. We oh. don't have any oil in this. And then on top of that, you can eat it with a soup or a stew or uh, pile it with delicious things and eat it like a taco. And uh, it's we use uh, it as a side, um in many, many, many recipes. And I, I I will just say that the no fry fry bread is actually under the pantry staples, right? Because we felt that it was a staple and that everybody should have it in their pantry so that you could incorporate it with potatoes or tomatoes or chilies or squash or corn or beans.
1: All right. Uh, the, the next one that caught my eye, because I am a, a a lover of anything potato, just say potato and I'm there, is the red chili potato casserole. Oh,
3: so that was such a surprise. You know, I think a lot of people that are life have had, you know, a dish potatoes au gratin, right? With butter and cream and thinly sliced potatoes. And, you know, we were using the mandolin and slicing these delicious locally grown potatoes from our farms here. Uh, many people can use store-bought as well. And we decided we were going to take our traditional red chili sauce, which I make with pods. There are cooks and chefs here in New Mexico that make it with powder, but I'm a pod girl. So I only included the red chili pod recipe. Mm-hmm. And we added a little uh, coconut milk to that and some onions and we baked it. And oh, it is Heaven! It is such a rich, delectable casserole. I love it. It's
1: it's a it's a new favorite for sure. That will probably be the first recipe that I cook from the book. I, I assure you. <laughs> and the the second for dessert, of course, will probably be the the chocolate, coconut, and dried cherry tamales. Wow. That's a good one, too. So what we did was we
3: added melted chocolate into the masa, so into the corn. And then uh, we added the uh, dried cherries and a little bit of coconut. And then you just steam them and then you would eat it that way. I... I'm a sauce girl, but I'm sort of classically trained in my culinary background, and I love sauces. So we made a chocolate sauce to go with the chocolate tamale, and it is heaven on earth. I think the other sort of decadent chocolate, uh, one of the most rich recipes would be the dark chocolate tort. And -hmm. that is just creamy and chocolatey and kind of like heaven on earth.
1: The one that actually took me by surprise... um well, and, and, and I'm intrigued to, to try it, is the corn ice.
3: Oh, that's such a good recipe. So we call it Grace's Corn Ice. Grace is a wonderful uh, Navajo Nation cook slash chef uh, that's been doing amazing uh, plant-based work uh, in communities throughout the Navajo Nation. And Walter also grew up with this. So we took their two memories and recipe and we made uh, a toasted corn, a pudding with a little bit of uh, ash, which is optional, although the ash has lots of nutrients in it. And, uh, we added maple and then froze it. And then you have to take it out and kind of temper it a little. And then we cut it into squares and put a little more maple syrup on it. And it is the sweetest dessert. Uh, it's so lovely. It, it really is a lovely dessert and, of course, goes back in Navajo tradition and is uh, just wonderful, a, a wonderful recipe to try.
1: I mean, something they would put out in the snow and during winter. Yep. Right?
3: yep. Walter grew up with his grandma doing that. It was a treat. Yep.
1: Yeah, great. Well, all of these recipes are, are just, are, you know, forget the fact that someone said, Oh, a new vegan cookbook. Forget that. This is just a new cookbook because the recipes are so, so intriguing, so intricate. And so the flavors, I can taste them as I read them. They're just, they're really wonderful. Um, and I, I applaud the work that, that you and, and, um, and Walter Whitewater, your, your chef, um, advisor, um, have been doing with the, the native communities, the, the, um, Native American food programs and and is is there a um, a Native American food programs or foodways organization that uh, that helps promote a lot of this work? Well, uh,
3: I don't know if you read the foreword, but the foreword: "Friendship and Collaboration through Native Foodways" with uh, Dr. Melissa Nelson. Yes, I
1: did read her book, uh, who foreword. started
3: the Cultural Conservancy. I'm actually on the board. And uh, it's wonderful because they have a wonderful Native Food Waste Program. And I think they've been working uh, with farm and a farm initiative to get these foods distributed and then help people learn how to cook them. So it's really wonderful to see uh, nonprofits and organizations and native chefs. And I really tried to talk a little bit about all of these things, the, the importance of sustainability. We are zero waste. You know, the acknowledgement of the ancestors and how throughout history and the trials and tribulations of what they endured to be able to pass down these wonderful recipes and how, you know, we are, uh, um, you know, uh, conduits, Walter and I, through passing this on. And um, one of the elders, which I, I mentioned uh, in this um, uh, from Hemes Pueblo, talked about the term earth people, Er, and, and and other culture groups have called it earth citizen, you know, that in order for us to sustain our mother and the mother referencing the earth, our earth mother, is that we all need to work together, all people, all cultures, all colors, all ages. And in order to have a, a healthy, happy earth in seven generations. We really need to collaborate and work together on uh, sustainability and passing on health and wellness. And I think this book, um, we really hope that we can uh, encourage people, uh, especially our youth, to take the ball and run with it and work towards positive and sustainable solutions uh, to health and wellness in all of our cultural groups in uh, moving forward. And that's a big uh, impetus. For why we did the book and that we want it to feel inclusive, that we want our native communities to be healthy and well, but we want all communities to be healthy and well. We don't, we want to go past any colors and we want to be inclusive and incorporate everybody and that this is, there's room for everybody to be a part of, uh, future solutions to health and wellness and eating more plants and being sustainable on this earth. And, and I think
1: that's very important. Yeah. Yeah and i applaud the work that, that both you and and uh, chef walter whitewater do with this book and with red mesa cuisine one little tidbit i wanted to leave the listeners with and that's uh something that chef walter does a lot and you can tell us about that um about the burned husks what he does with it and, and being an artist and 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 <laughs>
3: We have zero waste. So, you know, uh, we just made the Navajo kneel down bread the other day because uh, there's a story coming out on Walter uh, in New Mexico magazine in the upcoming months. And, uh, you know, he made it. And when you peel those outside leaves, uh, they're still good. So sometimes he'll use them as garnishes on other plates. But other times uh, it, 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 he puts it back to the earth. And with that is a thank you. You know, thank you to the corn, thank you to the earth, thank you to all the components that have become a part of the foods we eat every day. And I don't know if we're uh, if if we're how conscious we all are. I know that um, uh, when I was teaching at the Institute of American Indian Arts, you know, I asked my students, "When was the last time you took your shoes off and just stood barefoot on the earth?" to ground you, to reconnect you to who you are and your connection to the earth. And so I think, you know, Walter brings in some of these ideas of uh, some people might say it's composting, putting back, having gratitude. And, you know, when we're in a state of gratitude, that's healthy, not only in a physical sense, but in an emotional and mental sense and a spiritual sense. Right. And so this is about all all wellness, all healing, and and reconnecting uh, for everybody.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Lois, for your time and and all of the explanation of these, educating us into all of these food ways. And I want to let people know, once again, the name of the new book is Seed to Plate, Soil to Sky, Modern Plant-Based Recipes Using Native American Ingredients by Lois Ellen Frank and uh, Chef Walter Whitewater as culinary advisor. And I look forward to hearing more about these new foodways. Thanks for joining me. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.